Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. You've made the best decision you could possibly make by tuning your ear to the Word of God. I would love to invite you to stay updated with us on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at Revival House Church. Father, bless this person and let the seed of the Word multiply 30, 60, and 100 times over in Jesus' name. When you say the Protestant Reformation. And so I love to take time because, again, you'll have Christians that go their whole life and never get taught this stuff. They've never heard of Martin Luther. They've never heard of the Protestant Reformation. They have no idea where their faith really even comes from, where all this freedom that we have today comes from. They have no idea about it. And so October 31st is a significant day. And I'm going to tell you the story of the Protestant Reformation and this man, Martin Luther, this morning. Are you all okay with that? It'll be educational, right? It's, it's, this will be something, you'll learn something. There's some historical things in this. But I just pray this, that God, the Holy Spirit, imparts things into your spirit. That there are so many things that we can learn from these great men in the past that we need to apply today. Okay, the Protestant Reformation, that basically means this. Protestant, it stands for protest. Say protest. And say reform. Basically what that means is when Christianity was reformed through protest. Say protest. You know, and again, this is so funny because in 2020 through 2022, you just got uh, a lot of pastors and preachers and churches, they all shut down. And they all told you we just need to compromise and we need to settle. And Romans 13, obey the government at all costs. And it's funny, you know, they're sitting in these huge, big, fat buildings that were paid for by tithe dollars in a free country because there was a people and there was a man that actually protested the system of their day. So it's easy for us to sit in the luxury and say, well, I'm going to take a back seat and I'm going to play it safe and I'm going to enjoy all of this luxury that I get today, all the fruit today that I'm eating from of a person that actually risked it all and and protested the system of their day. Amen. Okay, so let's just start from the beginning. I want to give you a quick briefing of where this all begins. The church began in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And and what we read in Acts 2, that was the birth of the church. The church never existed before that. Are you guys with me? So the church's birth, the Holy Spirit's poured out. There was 120 men in the upper room. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter went out. He preached to thousands of people. 3,000 men, plus probably women and children that day, got saved. And, and, and out of the 3,000, they formed a, a community of believers. That was the first church. As soon as that community formed, they started meeting together every day. The apostles would teach them. They would share meals together. They would pray together every day. And that was where literally the church began in Acts chapter 2. Are you all with me? Okay. So let me see here. A few hundred years go by. And Apostle Paul takes the gospel and he does something nobody's ever done before. He takes the gospel to the Gentiles. Who were the Gentiles? They were the people, basically, Gentiles means people of the world. 
So he took the gospel to the Roman Empire. He took the gospel to Asia Minor. He took the gospel to deeper in the Middle East. He took it through Apostle Paul's ministry and disciples he raised up. The, the gospel went down into North Africa. It began to spread outside of this little 70-mile landmass known as Israel, and the gospel began to go out to the whole earth. Okay? And so the church is thriving. The church is actually going into the Roman Empire. And I mean, they, the believers, they're thriving, they're growing, they're multiplying, they're prospering, they're being blessed, even in the midst of severe persecution. In fact, many, much of the Roman Empire would persecute the church. They would kill these Christians. They would burn them alive. They would do these horrific things. But the leaders of the Roman Empire, the emperor, began to see that no matter what we try to do to these Christians, they just won't die. Y'all with me? They won't die. We can't stop them. We can't shut them down. And in fact, it seems like every time we kill them, it's like we, we kill one and ten more pop up. We killed 10 and a 1,000 more pop up. And, and Christianity began to literally thrive and overtake the Roman Empire. Okay, so Emperor Constantine, there was an emperor, Roman Empire named uh, Constantine, they began to look, the, the, the greatest empire in human history began to collapse from the inside out. There's several reasons why it began to collapse. Uh, example, they began to embrace homosexuality. And I'll tell you, historically, any people, any nation that embraces homosexuality, it will not stand the test of time. You know why? Because it destroys the nuclear family. It destroys this idea of a one man, of one woman, coming together and raising up children under one man and one woman. Now, all of a sudden, it became very common that a man could have a wife and a boyfriend on the side, and it was normal, and a few children on the side, as sick and perverted as it was. And so it began to destroy the family. So what did it produce? It produced paganism. It produced heathenism. It produced lawlessness. So now you have a, a nation, an empire full of these lawless people. And it, guess what, guys? It's not working. It's like cancer. It's rotting this empire. It's destroying it. So Constantine steps back and he says, you know what? This is failing. It, but, but there's this little group of people that seem to be thriving. They're not, getting, they're not doing all the homosexuality stuff and the paganism and the heathenism. They're this little group of people that seem to be thriving in their community. And they're known as the way, the Christians. They follow this, this God, this man named Jesus Christ. And so Constantine, you know, I know it's, it's kind of debated historically, but Constantine truly, I, I believe this to be true, he, he out of a... Desperate attempt to save the Roman Empire, he overnight, pretty much immediately, made Christianity the, the, the predominant religion of the Roman Empire. And he didn't do it through the preaching of the gospel, right? All right, well, let's fund the gospel. Let's get souls saved. Let's, let's preach. No, they would literally start taking lines out of people, lining them up, taking them down, and soldiers holding their swords out like like radical Islamists or Muslims and saying, get baptized or we're chopping your head off, right? So you basically have all of these people falsely converting to the faith. They weren't surrendering their life to Jesus Christ. They were just kind of uh, coming into some of the aspects of Christianity and, and confessing Christianity because they had to under Roman rule. Are y'all with me now? 
Okay. So here's the thing. A few hundred years have gone by. The church was birthed in about 33 A.D. So you got 100 year, 200 year, coming up on 300 years. And now all of a sudden you have this mix. You have Christianity mixing with paganism, which is, you know, the, these people, they just witchcraft, pagan, and, and then this, this religion called polytheism. They worshiped many gods. So you got paganism, polytheism, Christianity, all in one melting pot mixing together. And guess what it gave birth to? The Roman Catholic Church was birthed in the 300s. That word Catholic actually means all-embracing. That's what the word Catholic means. It means all-embracing. So think about that. Again, you got this worship of multiple gods, Christianity, paganism coming together, and that's really what, what... Roman Catholicism was is it was no longer biblical Christianity. They took a little bit of Christianity. They took a little bit of paganism. Now they're now you don't just worship Jesus. You're worshiping uh, Saint Anne and Saint Peter and all these other sacraments and indulgences and all of these things. And it's and it's this paganism that's being blended together. And it produced what's known as the Roman Catholic Church, which means all embracing. We just embrace it all. Are y'all with me? Okay. So, as you could probably use your mind, this did not go very well, as you would suspect. This caused some major problems. Um, and so, Constantine, he had built this huge cathedral when he did this called St. Peter's Cathedral. It was magnificent. It was beautiful. And the Roman Catholic Church was birthed. Well, about a thousand years go by now, okay? A thousand years. And this is what's known in history as the Dark Ages. This type of paganism, this, this false religion, this apostasy, guys, I'm telling you to open the door to a strong demonic principality that dominated and governed over Europe for like a thousand years. 1,200 years about. That's what's known in history as the medieval dark ages. I mean, you look at the, the plagues, and, and I'll talk about some of that. The black death and, and, and the, the crazy things that went on during that time. That people, basically it's like humanity just stopped progressing for 1,200 years. There was no new technologies coming out. There was no new medicines coming out. There was nothing coming out. It was just under this demonic principality known as the Roman Catholic Church. So he builds this huge cathedral. Constantine, a thousand years goes by, and it, guess what? That cathedral starts falling apart. Looks horrible. Paint's coming off the walls. So now at this time, they, they've initiated what they call the Catholic Pope, which was the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Catholic Pope of this time is looking around at St. Peter's Cathedral, and he's saying, man, this thing is really looking bad. All right, we need to do something about this. We need to totally renovate it. And so he began to figure out, how can I fund this renovation? We need, in modern day, we need millions and millions of dollars. How am I going to get these millions and millions of dollars? I know what I'll do. I'll just start creating new doctrines outside of the Bible and, and called indulgences, which is basically this. You pay me a certain amount of money, and I'll get your grandma out of purgatory. Right, they, they, he actually created these purgatory issues. When you die, 
You don't go to heaven. You don't go to hell. You go to purgatory. And based off of how you lived your life will determine your sentencing in purgatory. If you didn't repent and you had problems in your life, you would spend a thousand years paying your sentence in purgatory before you could enter into heaven. And guess what? It began to scare these people, and, and so they created these things called indulgences. So, you know, your grandma, she had some problems. She went to purgatory. She's going to be there for 1,500 years. But if you give me $5,000, the Pope will pray this little fancy prayer, and she'll pop right out of purgatory and go straight to heaven. Guess what? The common man just started throwing money, and the Pope started funding the cathedral being built. So I'm going to give you some of the problems of the Catholic Church, this corruption. Here's some of the problems. Number one, as I just mentioned, when you die, you spend time in purgatory to pay for your sins. You could pay indulgences to shorten your time in purgatory. And not only could you shorten your time in purgatory, like I said, you could pay for granny, you could pay for your neighbor, uh, and, and this is how they began to fund the Catholic Church. Guys, that's absolutely insane. Are you with me? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. If you're a believer and you die, you don't go into purgatory. You go, you'll, be, you'll be in the presence of Jesus Christ in the blink of an eye. And on the opposite side, <laughs> this is kind of where I guess the idea of purgatory comes from. But do you know this, that there's nobody in hell right now? Do you know that hell is the final judgment? Hell is not a deep, dark cave where there's ACDC playing rock music and demons chaining people to the walls. and That's not hell. Hell is what's known in the Bible as the lake of fire. If you want to know what hell is, imagine God peeling the top off a volcano and you're standing at the top looking down and you see nothing but molten lava popping up. That's actually what eternal hell is. And the Bible says that in the final judgment... The righteous, they won't be judged in this way, but everybody that rejected Christ or was not known by God, they're not going to get put in a dark cave. They are literally going to be thrown into a lake of fire. And can you imagine a lake of fire where, where now you've put on a glorified state where you can't die? So you're thrown into lava and you're burning alive, but you can't die. You can feel every bit of it. You can feel your body burning. You can feel it going down your throat and up your nose. You can feel your eyes burning out of the sockets of your head, but you can't die. And it's not for 1,000 years or a million years or a billion years. It's for all eternity. You understand why now the gospel is so important, why we need to get people saved? So let's keep moving on. More problems with the Catholic Church. Number two, they created this doctrine where the Pope holds greater authority than the scripture. Basically what this did was the Pope had the, the right where if he said, you know what, I was praying and God gave me this new idea and so basically I'll throw this new idea out and it's held at the same standard as scripture. Whatever the Pope says goes as if it was the word of God. You could obviously see where this causes problems, hence pay $5,000 and get granny out of purgatory, and that was taken like the holy word of God. Here's a number three problem. Number three, the Bible was written and read in Latin by the priests and was banned from the average man. Okay, so the average person during these times did not have access to this. Guys, I'm telling you, this is a miracle from heaven. 
We should thank God for this every day. It's so crazy how, how easy the devil can get believers to not read their word. When only a, a few hundred years ago, Christians didn't have this. And so they didn't have the word. And in fact, the believers, the Catholics, when they would go to church, not only did they personally not have a Bible, the only Bibles that existed, this was before the printing press, were these giant Bibles that were chained to the podiums in the churches where the priest would come up when it was time for Catholic Mass or, you know, whatever, and they would open up this Bible, read it, read it in Latin, and here's the problem. Nobody spoke Latin. It was a dead language. Who speaks Spanish fluently in this room? Nobody? Oh, one person? Who speaks Korean in this room? Anybody speak Korean? No. Could you imagine me standing up? You come to church today, me standing up and say, all right, I'm going to read you the word of God. And I just start going off in Korean. And you're sitting there like, what in the world? Okay, now that I'm done, I'll tell you what it says. And you just need to take my word for it. Major problems. Are you guys with me? They had to completely trust in the priest which it became so completely corrupt. And throughout history, you would have these men that would pop up and begin to stand against the system. You know, I'll tell you the story getting to Martin Luther, but first you had a man known as John Wycliffe. He was a man in the 1300s. You know what John Wycliffe did? He translated the Bible into English. England English. Guys, and I'm telling you, that was a problem. You would think, wow, hallelujah, somebody, somebody's come up now that can read Latin and take the Holy Scriptures and put it in the hands of people. You would think that's what they would think, right? No, they thought, how dare you take God's holy word and put it in that barbaric, that barbaric language of the common man. The common man is not fit for this word. The common woman, you know, in those times, women, they weren't even allowed to read. They weren't even allowed to be taught to read. It's totally a system of, we talk about, oh, we, we live in this systemic suppression. We're just suppressed. Are you kidding me? We are the least suppressed that we've ever been before. All people. Come on, somebody. And so anyways, they had this. This guy came up and he translated the Bible for the first time in the 1300s into English. Surprisingly, this man was not martyred. He actually died a natural death. He went out into uh, the woods and he started a secret Bible school and he would start getting priests to come in and he'd start teaching them the word of God. And then these priests would, were, were for the first time hearing the word of God, being taught the true word of God, and they would take, take that teaching into the cities and the villages and and begin to evangelize and, and teach the people. But it's really funny. This guy, for whatever reason, he just died a natural death. And they thought, okay, he's dead. You know, his work will just die with him. And this will all kind of shut down and quiet down a little bit. No, no. They, they, they didn't realize that once the word of God is released, it can't be brought back. Are you with me? The word of God goes forth, and the, words, and the Bible says that it never returns void. So that was the devil's worst mistake, was even letting the word go, go out a little bit. Because it will go forth, and if there is a fertile soil for it to fall on, it will produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. You know, and so, guess what? This man's work did not die. It's still, it's going stronger than ever, 50 years after he's dead. So they think about this guy. They say, you know what? 
They're getting all spiritual and spooky and weird. They say, we'll go dig this guy's bones up, and we're going to crush it into powder and burn this man's remains. And hopefully after burning his bones, his work will die. You know, can you imagine that your life and your ministry so impactful that 50 years after you're dead, people are trying to dig up your grave? Man, the devil's so mad at you, he's trying to dig up your grave and pee on your bones. You made him so mad. You did something for the Lord. Amen. So it's funny, but, you know, they thought we're going to ground these bones into, into dust and we're going to dump them in the river. But they were dumb. They dumped it in the river that went into the ocean and then his remains went out all over the world. Prophetically. Amen. The word went out all over the world. Okay, so that was the 1300s. Now you got the 1400s. You got a man named John Huss. John Huss, same thing. He gets trained up to read the Bible, the holy written Latin word of God, and he starts reading it, and and guess what? He has a heart for God, and he's saying, hey, hold on, guys. What is in this word is not what's happening. You're being lied to. And he began to protest, if you will, the religious system of his day. Well, differently than John Wycliffe, John Huss, he was promised that he was going to have a fair trial. They would hear his case, but instead of giving him a fair trial, they, they bound him up and drug him down the middle of the road in his town that he lived in. They tied him to a stake, and they burned him alive for speaking against the Catholic Church. And this is interesting about John Huss, but in his last breath, He prophesied, he said, a man is coming a hundred years from now who you will not be able to stop or kill. One hundred years later, in 1483, you have a German man born named Martin Luther. Say Martin Luther. This is where we're going to pick up today. And if I don't get it all done today, it's okay. Next week is actually the day before Reformation Day, Halloween. See, as a Christian, you didn't know. We don't celebrate Halloween. We celebrate Reformation Day. Praise God. So Martin Luther, he's a German, (coughs) German man. He was going to go to school to be a lawyer. He wasn't even trying to be a minister. He was going to be a lawyer. His dad wanted him to just have money and be prestigious. And so he sent him to school, 1400s, be a lawyer. And during this time, as we said, Europe was in the Dark Ages. And so there was this disease that killed one-third of Europe all throughout this time called the Black Death. It's actually funny. You know, part of the, the Catholic, at one time, they thought that cats were, like, satanic. I kind of agree. I hate cats. I think they're kind of Satan's animals. But they started killing all the cats. And guess what? When the cats started dying... The mice population just started overpopulating all throughout Europe. And they didn't realize that these mice were carrying this disease called the Black Plague, the Black Death, and it spread all throughout Europe. It killed one-third of of Europe's population. Right, so Martin Luther, he's a young man in college, and literally this is now spread into Germany. Two of his friends from college have died of the Black Death. And so he was at home visiting his family And he was on his way back to school, to the city where he went to school, university. And he got stuck in a thunderstorm. And during this thunderstorm, a bolt of lightning came down and hit a few feet away from where he was standing. And in those days, 
Remember the black plagues happening, the black death? They were taught by the Catholic Church that when stuff like that happens, God's angry at you. He's mad at you. So Martin Luther drops to his knees. He doesn't pray to Jesus. He prays to St. Anne, who is supposedly the mother of Mary. And he says, God, please don't kill me. If you don't kill me, I'll be a priest. I'll go be a, a, a monk, a Catholic monk. And so being a man of his word, he, uh, let me see here. Being a man of his word, he went and joined a monastery, became a Catholic monk. But he was deeply depressed because Martin Luther was very unique. He wasn't there for the wrong reason. He wasn't there trying to manipulate people. He wanted to be made right with God. He was always striving right standing with God. You know, what did Jesus say? Those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, you will be filled. Guys, even in a time where there wasn't a Bible and, and their system, this demonic system kept, it did everything they could to keep this out of the hands of a man. Jesus still fulfilled the promise. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, I'll find a way. I'll fill your cup if you'll come to me. So he wanted to be made right with God, but you know, they were, they were in the system where there was never a way to be made right with God. He would try and go into Catholic confessions. If you don't know what that is, that's where they get the priest, the confessor. They stand on the other side of that little screen. And, and you know, he would con be in confession for like eight hours a day, confessing, trying to be made right with God. But then guess what? He would come out and he would still feel guilty. Why? Because only the blood of Jesus can remove the guilt and the weight of sin. But he didn't understand that. He thought, well, you know, i got to spin around and do the Hail Mary and buy these indulgences and do all this stuff. And it, it wasn't working. So he just felt more depressed, more depressed, more depressed. So finally his overseer said, you know what? We're going to send you to Rome, the holy city, to St. Peter's itself. Where, all the, where the Pope is, where the martyrs were, the, the holy city of God. So he, by foot, walked from Germany all the way over to Rome. He pilgrimaged over there. And he gets to Rome, to the holy city, expecting, wow, this is the church I've been serving. I'm so excited to get here, and, and I'm going to get a fire, and, you know, modern-day terms. But guys, guess what? He got over there, and he was disgusted by what he saw. Because as a priest... He was vowed to take this vow of poverty. You know, the Catholic priests, they weren't allowed to have wives or children. Did you know that? You know why? In the beginning, Catholic priests, in the beginning of the Catholic church, the priests could have a wife and have a children. But the, the church got into this problem that when the priests would grow old and die, the house and all the assets would be left to the wife and the children. And the church said, Nope, we want that. And so they made this law and tried to force it on people where you cannot have a wife and you can't have a children. You take this vow of poverty, and when you die, everything that you've accumulated goes back to the church. So that's this reality this man's been living in. He gets over there, and he starts, he sees the Pope. I mean, you know, he sees these, these, men, these, these leaders that are wearing fine robes and living in this life of luxury. And he's sitting here thinking, this is not right. Something's not right here. They're over here doing all this stuff to milk us of everything that we have. And I get here to the holy city thinking that I'm going to see the right-hand man of Jesus Christ himself. But yet, these leaders, they were sleeping with the town prostitutes, businesses in the town brothels. 
lying, manipulating, stealing from the common man. And guess what? Martin Luther made this statement. He says, I hate God. Because he, he, he hated the God that he saw. But that wasn't the God. That was not Jesus. Are y'all with me? And so they had these crazy things. Again, they had these sacraments. They had these indulgences. He got to Rome, and they had this staircase that was supposedly the stairs that Jesus walked up as he was being tried before Pilate. And they, they believed, okay, you pay us seventy five ninety nine, and you can walk up these stairs. And when you get to the top, you'll get a piece of paper with a stamp on it, and you got a blessing from God. So Martin Luther, he starts at step one, and he's praying. All, there's like 27 steps. He, each step, he prays. He crawls on his hands and knees, getting bloodied up knees, bloodied up elbows. He's crawling and praying at each step, and guess what? He gets to the top expecting some, some blessing, some revelatory thing, and nothing happens. But a thought did pop into his head. It says in his journals where he had this thought when he got to the top. This thought that said, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, he had already been studied as a monk. He had to learn Latin. He had to learn how to read the scripture. That was part of his job. And wherever it came from, if it was the Holy Ghost speaking it to him, it came into his head. The righteous shall live by faith. And all it did was drive him into more discontentment into the system that he was currently in. So he goes back. To where he's from, he's more mad than he's ever been before. He's more depressed than he's ever been before. And, but now he's, went, he's made his pilgrimage. He's got higher up in the ranks. And the, so they say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to send you over to a place called Wittenberg, Germany, and we're going to let you be a professor. There's a little Bible college there. You can, you can kind of step into what we would call modern, like a, a pastoral position. You're not a priest, you're a professor. You'll hold daily lectures and you'll just kind of teach the word of God. So Martin Luther goes over there to Wittenberg to become this professor. Guys, and guess what? Guess what happens? In order to start teaching the Bible, guess what has to happen? He starts reading the Bible. <laughs> and as he starts reading the Bible, the word of God starts coming alive in this, in this monk, in this man under this demonic religious system. And this fire starts coming, and he starts seeing all of these problems. And so on October 31st, this is where we're tying it into why I'm teaching you this. This is the redemption day. We don't celebrate Halloween. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther walked up to the front door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he didn't slide it under the door. He didn't put it in the private little box. He took a nail and he nailed what's known as the 95 thesis to the front door. Do you guys have a picture of that? Did you get a picture? That's okay. He nailed a 95 thesis. Basically, a thesis was 95 points where he challenged the Catholic church. Y'all, I'm telling you, this wasn't America where you can walk up to a police officer and scream F you in their face and they say, oh, there's freedom of speech. You understand? The last guy that did this was burned alive at the stake. He nailed a 95 points challenging the Catholic church. 95 theses. And why did he do it on Halloween? 
They didn't celebrate Halloween. He did it because the next day, November 1st, was what's known as All Saints Day. That was like modern day Christmas and Easter, right? How many of you guys know? You got the the Christians, they only come to church on Christmas and Easter. It's like, I don't serve the Lord any day, but guess what? On Easter, we're going to get to church. We go to church on Christmas, on Easter. That was kind of their culture. They had what was known as All Saints Day. So he did it on October 31st knowing that this ain't going to just be some little thing that slides under. He knew tomorrow everybody's coming to this church, and the first thing they're going to see is this paper nailed to the front door. Hallelujah. This is really amazing. The type of stock, you know, that the, these men came from. Here's, you know, and I've been teaching on this now for a few years. I think this is the third year that I've taught this in this church around this time. And I've never taken the time, sad to say, until this year to actually read the entire 95 thesis. This year, though, I just felt inspired. I said, Lord, what was it that this man said that was so revolutionary? And so we have them if you want one. I found a modern translation of the 95 thesis, basically written in more modern language that you can understand. And I have a few points that I highlighted, some of the things that he said. Okay, one thing that he said is, only God can give salvation, not a priest. Right, we say, duh, that that seems pretty duh, we understand that. But again, think of this time. This was the system that dominated the world. You didn't cross the system, and now he's saying, I challenge you publicly, only God can give salvation, not a priest. He says, only God can forgive. The Pope can only reassure people that God will do this. Basically, what he's saying is, hey, Pope, you don't have the power to forgive anybody. You can only reassure them when Jesus Christ forgives them, according to the word of God. Man, that was, that was a huge knock at the, at the Pope's authority. Remember, he had such authority that whatever he said was as good as the word of God. But he says, you have no power to forgive anybody. And you'll see it gets even more direct where he's like, you're a hypocrite, you're a liar, you're a manipulator, you don't carry the power to do the things that you're doing. He said purgatory equals hell, heaven equals assurance. Basically, this whole purgatory problem, he said there's no such thing, it doesn't exist. He says an indulgence will not save a man. Y'all, I'm going to tell you something. You You could have slapped the Pope's mother before you touch the Pope's money in this day. How is the Pope funding everything? Through the indulgences. So when Martin Luther went up here and said, an indulgence will not save a man, I mean, he's literally confronting this whole system. A dead soul cannot be saved by an indulgence. Number 27, it says, number 27, it's nonsense to teach that a dead soul in purgatory can be saved by money. He says, number 39, the most educated theologians cannot preach about indulgences and real repentance at the same time. So basically what he was saying was, if you're really educated, if you've really read the Bible, you cannot do what you're doing. So what he was doing was he wasn't only confronting the Pope, he was confronting all the little false teachers running around of his day saying, you guys are nothing but snake oil salesmen. Number 43, a Christian who gives to the poor 
or lends to those in need is doing better in God's eyes than the one who buys forgiveness. Oh, no. Can you imagine the Pope? He's getting so frustrated. He's telling them to actually help other people instead of just giving me all their money. Number 45, a person who passes by a beggar but buys an indulgence will gain the anger and disappointment of God. You pass by, as we talked about in the offering, you see your brother who has no food, has no clothing. You walk by them and and show no help, but then go buy an indulgence to gain some blessing from God. He says that you gain the anger and disappointment of God. The Pope should have more desire for devout prayer than for ready money. Wow. The Pope, he's literally saying, Pope, you should give yourself more to pray. You should be more concerned about praying than you are about money. If if the Pope knew how much people were being charged for an indulgence, he would prefer to demolish St. Peter's. He says, the Pope, look at this one, the Pope should give his own money to replace that which is taken from the partners. Wow, you've been cheating all these people out of money? The Pope should have to repay them all back personally. You don't say stuff like this, guys. What do we got now in 2020 preachers? Well, we just need to honor. We just, you know, we just need to go with the flow. We don't want to rock the boat. He's like, literally, you've been a lying, scheming scoundrel, and you should pay these people back personally. To the Pope. It's blasphemy that the word of God is preached less than that of indulgences. Why doesn't the Pope clean feet for holy love and not for money? Indulgences bought for the dead should be repaid by the Pope. (laughs) The Pope should rebuild St. Peter's with his own money. If the Pope had workers as he should, I'm sorry, if the Pope had workers as he should, and by example, All the problems stated above would not have existed. I'm sorry, if the Pope had worked, not workers, if the Pope had worked as he should, man, he is straight laying it out now. If you would have done your job to the Pope, all the problems that I've stated above would not have existed. He says, all those who say that there is no problem must go. The problems must be tackled. So he's not just saying to the Pope, he's saying all the priests, all the people running around selling these indulgences, every single person that won't stand against this system needs to be removed from office, essentially. Y'all getting any of this? Is this boring? Lastly, last couple here. I just highlighted some of my favorites. Christians must follow Christ at all costs, number 94. And then number 95, he said, let Christians experience problems as if they must and overcome them rather than living a false life based on present Catholic teaching. So basically what Martin Luther is saying is, if if you do what I'm saying, you are going to be persecuted by the 
the Catholic Church, but he's saying it's better for you to have the problems, it's better for you to suffer, it's better for you to die if need be than to continue in this false life and in this false teaching and and this heresy. So Martin Luther was willing to confront the system of his day. I had teaching here. I might go over for just a moment. Martin Luther was willing to confront the system of his day. And I'll also say this too. Every person that has carried Reformation had to confront the religious and secular systems of their day. Jesus, Paul, the prophets, Martin Luther. I mean, every person. Here's my point. We have, to, we have to get this spirit in us today, right? This like little, let's just sit back, let's just go with the flow, let's not rock the boat. If we are going to see change, we have to be willing to confront the system. If we're unwilling to confront the system, we'll never see change. Are y'all with me? We'll never see change. Let's keep reading here. So he nails this 95 thesis to the front door of the church. And it's really funny because I don't, I don't believe Martin Luther really expected what was about to happen. Because this 95 thesis that he had nailed, this was not the first time that he had done that. In fact, if you look historically, there was many different papers that he had nailed to the church because this was actually a, a way to start a public discussion. So although the things that he was saying was abrasive, he wasn't trying to be like William Wallace that's like, I'm just going to burn the fort down, you know, and hope the king sees it. He, it was literally, this was the common practice to initiate public debate. So he's saying, here's my points. If anybody wants to debate me on these points, we can have a public debate. He had already put several papers up before that had got no attention or no traction. But guess what? The next day rolled around, All Saints Day, and Martin Luther, he, you know, he probably went to church. He goes home. He goes back to his writing and his, and his studying, and something happens. Around this same time in history, there was an invention that came to the modern world. Who knows what the invention was? The printing press. Now, for the first time in history, we're not having to write things out. They're able to make these templates and press and make mass copies of things. So some person walked up to that door and began to read this 95 thesis and said, you know what, I kind of like what this guy has to say. Took that paper off of that door, took it to a printing press, made, made uh, presses for it, and then literally just made copies, started making copies of these things, and started hand- I mean, going through the streets, skipping down the road, just throwing out papers all over the place. People were grabbing a hold of them and beginning to read them. They would go into the brothels and stand up on the tables and read Martin Luther's 95 thesis, and it really began to speak to the heart of people, because all of these people knew that something was not right, but nobody had the education or the boldness to stand up and confront it, and now for the first time, somebody's willing to do what nobody else was willing to do, and and it lights this fire all throughout Europe, where it starts to spread like wildfire. They're making copies after copies after copies, and, and now they're grabbing a hold of some of his other teachings that are, I mean, even more harsh than this, and it's just spreading all over the place. 
It's amazing. So, these things spread in a day with no TV, no social media, no broadcasting station or network. This, these copies began to spread, word of mouth, hand to hand, and guess what? It got all the way back to the Vatican in Rome. So the first time they brought some of this guy, Luther's teaching to the Pope, he looks at it and says, oh, this is probably just some drunk German monk. He'll sober up and he'll settle down. And he, they, they really didn't say anything about it. But a few months go by, and guess what? Another wave comes in. More, more just coming in. Another month goes by. Another, by the third time now, the Pope is just seeing this stuff circulating, and it starts, it's starting to cause a revolution. People are saying, you know what? We've been lied to. We've been cheated. And so now no one's buying indulgences. It shut down the indulgence industry. So guess what? The Pope lost all of his money coming in. And then they're going into the churches to the priests that have been lying to them, and they're going into the church little storehouse, treasure house, whatever it was, and they're taking back all that had been stolen and distributing it to the people. All their little statues of saint this and saint that, they're tearing them down, they're busting them up, and this revolution begins to happen. And so Martin Luther, you got to understand this, that the, the church had the ability to basically send a person to hell. They would give you a piece of paper and say, you've been rejected by the church. You will now face eternal judgment. You've been cut off. So this person, after these waves of information coming to the Pope, travels all the way down to Martin Luther in Wittenberg, finds this man, and hands them this piece of paper saying, you've been excommunicated by the Catholic Church, which basically meant you're no longer under their protection, and now you're subject to, to public trial, which will, will probably end in your execution. And he takes this paper that says, I've been excommunicated by the Catholic Church. You, what do you think he did? you think he cried? Oh, no. Publicly, he walked out publicly in front of everybody. He took that paper and he lit a fire right in front of the guy that sent it to him, that delivered it, and he put it in the fire and just smiled and waved at him and burned it. And so several months go by, and, and Martin Luther, he is summoned to this hearing, which is known in history as the Diet of Worms. That's a horrible English butchering. Worms... It's not worms, not like the worms that live in the ground. There was a city called what we would say worms, but it's really verms. They, they, they don't say worms like we do. It's like the, the diet of verms. Say verms. So the diet, it just basically means assembly. That word diet, it meant assembly. So this was the assembly in Worms, Germany. A, a, a assembly that was happening in Worms, Germany, where they were going to try Martin Luther. And so, this event comes, and Martin Luther, I don't think he really understood, but as he began to travel, he had to walk to Worms, and he would be going through these cities, and people would just be lined up in these cities to just come behind. They had got his teaching. I don't think he really understood what had really started. Again, they didn't have Facebook. He couldn't go viral. Are you guys with me? 
But these people begin to literally follow him. I mean, all the way. It was like Forrest Gump. If you've ever seen that movie, he's running, and there's just like these people that are just following behind him. He's making this pilgrimage, and these people that have got behind what he's doing, they're coming with him to this trial. So there was this huge public trial. And so, <clears throat> try to find my notes here. The first day of the meeting, they get all of Martin Luther's writings, all of his books, and they throw them out in front of him, and they say, did you write these things? And he says, yes, I did. And they said, we'll give, you need to right now, you wrote these things, you need to publicly retract everything that you said, and then we'll just dismiss it. If you publicly recant and retract Everything that you said will dismiss this case and you go on about your way. Martin Luther said, give me 24 hours to think about it. He went back that night wherever he was staying and he just began to pray. And it's actually recorded in his journal that he said that night many times, Satan, he, I don't know if it was in the spirit, if it was an open vision, Satan physically came and visited him that night. Multiple times. And he just started pondering, should I recant, should I retract? Because he knew that if he didn't, he knew that it meant probably certain execution. But he would get out his writings, get out his teachings, and he would go back to the word of God. And again, just the simple phrase, Romans 1.17, he would open it up. Am I right in what I'm saying? Can you imagine that? I mean, you have to be sure. Am I right? Because if I'm wrong, I'm about to die. That kind of pressure, am I sure that I'm sure that I'm sure? And he went back to the word of God. Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. And he said, no, this is what the word of God declares. He came back and they said, did you decide? Are you going to recant? Are you going to retract what you said? And he stood up publicly And he said this statement to them. He said, if you can prove to me by the scriptures and by the scriptures alone that I am wrong and that I have taught heresy, I will retract everything that I've ever said. But it must be by the scriptures and the scriptures alone. This is where a phrase came out of the Protestant Reformation called sola scriptura. It means the scripture alone. Say the scripture alone. The scripture alone. And so now you have all these people outside of this hearing, you know, because, again, it's easy to talk a big talk and then see what a person does when it's actually time to act. And I know I say it all the time, but, guys, 2020 and 2022 should have showed you what, what a man's really made of. It's easy to talk, oh, yeah, we believe Psalms 91 and all of this stuff, and we're going to stand for Jesus until all of a sudden now you're being threatened. Now you're being told what to do by a government. What do you do in that moment? So they were really saying, does this man, is it true? They're hoping that it's true. But if he retracts it all, then the whole thing dies. But they're just listening. And they hear him say, I will not retract. If you can show me by the scripture and the scripture alone that I'm wrong, I'll retract everything. Here is the problem. They knew he was right. So these people outside, they just start jumping and shouting and cheering. And guess what? It just brings a whole nother level of revolution. (laughs) 
And I'm going to finish the story up with this. But you need to remember that. Sola Scriptura. You need to live your life by that. The Scripture, the Scripture alone. Say the Scripture alone. Say the Scripture alone. You need to build your life on that. Jesus said, I'll read it to you. In Matthew chapter 7. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Say solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and floodwaters rise and winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rain and floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Jesus said, if you build your life on my word, it's like a person that builds on solid bedrock. You've got to build your life on this word. Y'all, I'm telling you, I've heard it. People, you start trying to bring the word to them and they reject it. Why do you reject it? Well, that ain't what grandpappy said. The scripture in the scripture alone. Are you with me? I don't care how you grew up. I don't care what you've been taught. I don't care what you've been told. We have to humble ourselves and say, I'm going to live by this word. I'll live by this word and I'll die by this word. But the word of God does not change. Can you say that? Say the word of God does not change. Well, how many of you know, Brother John, that things are different now? I know that the Bible says that marriage should be between one man and one woman, but, you know, that was written a long time ago. The word of God does not change. The grass may wither and the flowers may fade, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. People change, times change, culture changes, but the word of God never changes. And as Christians, we're not called to change with the culture. We have to get that in our spirits. Sola Scriptura, the scripture and scripture alone. And you better get ready. You better get ready to stand for Jesus Christ. Because there come a time where you may stand against a religious system that's against you. Where everybody's saying, hey, you need to stop rocking the boat like you're rocking the boat. We're all pals. We're all buds. Why don't you just go with with what we're doing? It it, it doesn't matter what it costs you. You stand for the word of God. Stand for what's right, no matter what the cost. And so Martin Luther, he leaves that meeting thinking, well, okay, I'm, I'm about to go to my certain death. But they couldn't sentence him because they had to have a unanimous vote. I believe there was 10 council members and they had to have a unanimous vote of all 10, there might have been more, in order to pronounce a sentencing over him or what to do. And and so there was one, it was the Lord, the Duke, I don't know the exact term, of Germany, but the German ruler, the man that ruled over Germany said, I like that Martin Luther. That guy's my monk. That's my pastor. That's my priest. He had read his writings. He liked him. And he did not vote in line with the religious system. He said, nope, I'm not going to agree. So Martin Luther leaves. They don't know what they're going to do with him. And on his way home, some knights come snatch him up out of the forest. They basically kidnap him, and they take him to a secluded castle out in the middle of nowhere. 
That king had sent his knights to basically to preserve him, to rescue him, and now he's sitting up in this castle alone, in hiding. He changed his name, grew out a big beard. Now he's sitting alone in this castle, escaping death, and and, and he starts thinking, man, he's like, I got all this free time on my hand. What should I do? I know. I'll translate the Bible into German. And so then he wrote, he took time and he translated the entire Bible. Now you would think, right, his life just, he thought he was about to die. You would think that the man would just like, okay, I'm safe. I did my my work for the Lord. Hallelujah, I made a difference. Now I'm just going to lay undercover. I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life. It'll be good. No, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll translate the word of God into German, and then we'll take that to one of those fancy little printing presses, and we'll start making copies of this stuff, and we'll just start sending it out to all the Germans. And so for the first time in history, the word of God was put in the hand of the common man. And so this is an interesting fact. As I told you, the revolution just got stronger. Cities are getting burnt down. Cathedrals are getting burnt down. Martin Luther goes back to his his hometown of Wittenberg after some time, and he's appalled. You would think that this is what the revolutionists wanted, right? He wanted the churches to be burnt down. Even some of the priests were getting killed. Oh, is that what he wanted? He wants, you're going to pay. We're going to show you. We're going to, no, he was appalled by what he saw. This is not the heart of the gospel. This is not the God that I'm preaching to you. This is not the way. And so the next day, he stands up in his church in Wittenberg, Germany. Remember now, this was a revolution that had went out over all of Europe. No Facebook, no broadcast. He stands up in his little town in Wittenberg, Germany, and he preaches seven sermons, one every day for seven weeks, and he stops the entire revolution with seven sermons. I don't know about y'all, but I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall in one of those sermons. Imagine a person that carries such an anointing and grace by God that in seven sermons they're able to stop basically a, a civil war that's happening. You know, and so this is why it's so important is that now all of a sudden these people had this, the, the word of God. They were being trained. They broke off from the Catholic church and they began to form Christian communities based off of this word. That continued for just a couple hundred years. You had some of those groups, even known as the pilgrims, who still were living underneath this, this suppression that was still trying to happen that they wanted, that they had a vision of a, a free community, a, a place where they could live and, and exercise their faith and serve the Lord as the Bible had instructed. And so they came over to the United States of America. They colonized the United States of America. That's what birthed this nation. You see how important these roots are? The, the, all of that, it birthed, it took, it took Europe out of the dark ages. It birthed basically the modern world. With, once that demon was broke and that principality was broke, technology, medicine, education just began to expand rapidly where it had been stagnant for a thousand years. 
Isn't that nuts to you guys how Christians can grow up in church their whole life and never hear this history? Amen. Well, that's all I got for you today. I told you this was different. I don't usually just tell you stories. I'm a word, 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 word person. But it's so important that you understand what we're celebrating. So this year, on October 31st, instead of participating with the devil and dressing up and doing all that stuff, why don't you just spend some time with God and thank God for this move of God's spirit and this work in the earth. Hallelujah. I pray again just from the story, from that caliper of what those men, they stood, what they were willing to do, what they were willing to confront, that we need that spirit in America today. We need that spirit in the church. We need that spirit rekindled in Christians today. So I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to dismiss you this morning. But Father, you are holy, and we give you honor, and we give you praise. Thank you for this word, Lord. Lord, we know that men have paid such a great price, given their lives for us to have this word, and we thank you for this word. Father, I pray that you would put the same thing in us, that we would stand for your word. Put that spirit of reformation in the inside of us. We would not just go with this culture. We would not just go with what's accepted. But Lord, in our day, in our hour, we would not compromise. We would not roll over. We would not bow to the system, but we would stand when it's our time to stand. That whenever it's on our shoulders for the generation that's coming after us, Lord, that we will not drop the ball, but we'll stand, Lord, that we'll stand giving it all for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for a remnant of people in America that will stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ and a culture that is turning more and more against Jesus and Christianity. As we enter into a time where sin is running rampant and the love of many is growing cold and and many are betraying and hating one another and there's persecution and it's just barely beginning in the United States, I thank you, Lord, for a church of people, a remnant of people that are not compromisers, but they'll stand for the word of God no matter what it costs. No matter what a government ever says, they'll say the scripture, the scripture alone. I don't care how much you tax me. I don't care what you threaten me with. I don't care what jail time you you try to throw my way. I will stand for the word of God. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, let that spiritual fortitude come in us, strengthen us by your word in this house. Strengthen this house to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Lord, I thank you. Strengthen this house that will stand for our county, will stand for our state. No matter how wicked or corrupt or twisted or in five years or ten years from now, whatever ridiculous thing they try to roll out to destroy this nation, to destroy the people of this nation, we will stand for the word of God. We ask you, Spirit of God, to prepare us Prepare us. Prepare us, Lord. Lord, we pledge our allegiance to you, Jesus Christ. We don't serve any man. We don't serve any system. We serve you, Lord. We're servants of you. If things need to be uprooted, we'll uproot them. 
If things, if, if rough places need to be made smooth, we'll make them smooth. We'll make crooked paths straight. We'll speak as the prophetic voice of the Lord in the earth today. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, church. Just thank the Lord for it. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We give you praise, honor, and glory in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, come on, give the Lord one more shout of praise this morning. Hallelujah. Lord, bless them for being hearers of the word in Jesus' name. If you would like to sow a seed or partner with this work that the Lord is doing, check out the description of this podcast or go to www.rhctx.com forward slash give. You can find all the ways to give on that page. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Until next time, this is John Wallace.